Hola and Calimera. Leah Pika here. Today's guest is a woman in analytics who will teach us how to pass the test on presenting test results. Stay tuned to find out who's making waves on the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 45. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics visualizations and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hello, hello, and welcome to the 45th episode of the Present Beyond Measure show, the only podcast at the intersection of presentation, data visualization, and analytics. This is the place to be if you're ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through thoughtfully presented insights and data stories. And today, you are here because you want to hear about how to present insights from a very specific and mystical field of digital marketing, one that we've never talked about on the show before, and that is, drumroll, testing and conversion rate optimization. Woohoo! So it is turning into a beautiful summer, and I just got back from spending two much-needed weeks of R&R in the gorgeous islands of Greece and Spain. I'm so amazing, so grateful. And I'm heading right back out to Zurich next week for a private workshop. But after that, I have not one, but two huge secret projects. Well, the first one is not actually very secret. I am converting my digital data storytelling bootcamp from a live web class to a recorded interactive course that you can sign up for and take online at your leisure. I'm so excited to be doing this finally. And I am upgrading my class content with extra videos, resources, checklists, all the bells and whistles that I can think of. And it's going to be amazing. So if you want to get on the list to hear about when it makes its debut, please visit leahpeka.com slash bootcamp and sign up for the waitlist. The second project that I'm working on is still top secret. And I am really, really excited about that one. And I promise you, dear listener, that you will be the first to hear more about it this summer. So stay tuned. All right. So I am super excited about today's guest, as usual. She is a growing powerhouse in the measure and presenting community, and she's helping me tackle a topic that I have been waiting years to be able to get at up in this show. So let's go. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Today's guest is fantastic. She's passionate about data, like really passionate, and leverages that enthusiasm to help stakeholders make smarter decisions and mitigate risks that comes with digital experimentation and optimization. As the optimization director at Search Discovery, woohoo! she spends her days crafting evidence-based hypothesis libraries and utilizing advanced AI features and testing platforms. So she's a little bit smart. She was a finalist in the DAA Rising Star Award. She's an active member of the digital analytics community, and she currently serves as president-elect of the DAA Board of Directors. She's a frequent speaker on the digital analytics conference circuit and appears on many podcasts, 
just like this one. She is also the latest superstar in my Women in Analytics spotlight and happens to be one of my favorite success stories. So please help me welcome Valerie Kroll. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me, Leah. I'm really excited about this. Me too. We have had so many interesting intersections in the last few years. <laughs> and um, what's funny is we didn't actually meet the first time we made a connection. So I would love if you actually told that story because it was more from your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So I got into digital analytics in 2013. And in my first role, um, I, I had some difficulties. So um, it was back in 2013. Um, and I was having some difficulties in my role just because of where my um, new function was positioned within the organization, within IT. Um, and some people who uh, were my stakeholders had applied for the role that I had been given. And so uh, I wasn't necessarily <laughs> positioned for success. So it was a, a little bit of a difficult start. Um, and I had transitioned from market research. And so there was a lot of ramp up, not only on how to approach this whole new way of leveraging data for insights, but the technology piece and uh, just the challenges that come with trying to ramp up in a new industry. And so um, I went to Accelerate, the conference in 2013. And I think that that was one of your first presentations. It was uh, my second one ever. Second one. <laughs> <laughs> you were still at Prudential at the time. I, I think. was, yes. And um, you gave a presentation about your uh, journey with presentations and how it had evolved over that time. And it couldn't have come at a better moment because um, <laughs> it was definitely, like I said, I had some difficulties within my role and the stakeholder buy-in was huge. And so just that new lens of how to approach presentations was really meaningful. And I think I've, I've told you this before that in that presentation, you had little light bulbs yeah. for every time there was a resource that you were recommending a book. Mm -hmm. And um, I purchased all five of those books before you done with the Q&A of that <laughs> session. You're welcome, Amazon. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I felt like I tried to replicate as much of your journey. Wow, because I thought that's it amazing. It was, um, it was really impactful. And I think that attending that Accelerate conference was really meaningful to my career because that was when I first had my in-person experience with the digital analytics community. Mm. And I really hadn't been exposed to it too much before then. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm not alone. Like other people are struggling with some of these things too. So I really felt like I met my tribe and my people. Um, so it was, it was that. And then eMetrics three weeks later, and I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm sticking with this. Like we're, <laughs> we're going to do this. <laughs> that is so amazing. So thank you to Analytics Demystified for hosting Accelerate that year. And thank you, Tim Wilson, for dragging me <laughs> to speaking. But I mean, I think you had reached out sometime after, or perhaps we encountered each other at a later event. And when you told me your story, you know, it, it meant so much to me at that time, because the second time I presented, I was not convinced that people wanted to hear what I had this, to say, or that they didn't already know everything that I had to say. And I was just blowing smoke. And hearing your story really made me feel like all those years of kind of struggling and tearing my hair out over trying to figure out why I could not like make affect real change for myself in my career. And then when I heard that, I was like, oh, this is it. <laughs> 
So I've just been so grateful for how we've inter intersected the last few years. And it's been amazing to watch you grow and flourish, especially in an area where I think people are clamoring for information. But before we get to that core topic, first, I'd like to understand, you know, did presenting feel like it came naturally to you? You know, was it an evolution? And how has that approach to presentation evolved as you've really honed your craft? Yeah, absolutely. The even though PowerPoint had been my primary delivery mechanism for communicating to clients back when I was in market research before, the script that I used to put together those presentations didn't necessarily translate to the new work in digital analytics. And mm. I didn't really expect that. Um, I kind of saw a lot of similarities between my role in market research and what I was doing in digital analytics, um, but it, it was a totally different narrative. So in market research, you always talk a little bit about your methodology first. Like that's not an appendix slide. You're like, you know, this was a phone survey or this was in-person ethnographies or a focus group. And that really helps set the context. Mm -hmm. Then you go through the story linearly. Like you talk first about unaided brand awareness and then aided brand awareness. And, right. and telling it that way is, is how you communicate your message. Whereas in digital analytics, like people are more focused less on like, okay, so we placed these tags and then we collected the data. Like no one wants to hear all about all these. <laughs> this is how complex it was. You're welcome. Yeah. And, and not to say that that is how I started my presentations when I first started. <laughs> Don't worry. It wasn't that bad, but um, I thought that that context and like starting at that place was the story that my audience came to hear. And I quickly realized that that was not what was going to resonate, that I needed to really switch to focusing more on the, the narrative that was going to resonate with the marketer, or with the product team. It needed to be translated. Um, and I didn't need to educate people on how to collect the data or how to become an analyst or a CRO, that it was more about how do we couch this in something that's really meaningful for you. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the presentation part and, and the public speaking part or, you know, holding the floor so that you can tell people about how data interjects into your strategy is something that I think um, not naturally, because I definitely think I've grown um, into this over time, but the part that I feel the most change is the way that I approach building that story and the way I edit it down to just the parts that are really going to move the needle. Oh, that's, that's interesting. So how big of a role would you say, you know, presenting now insights, how big is that compared to past positions that you held? Yeah, I think it's, still a major part of what I do, but the positioning is totally different. So in my new role at Search Discovery, I'm presenting to my clients and oftentimes I'm trying to give them the information that they can pass along to their internal stakeholders. Good point. Um, so sometimes um, we give them a little bit more behind the scenes information because we want to make sure that they're armed with that backstory, but mm -hmm. it's um, making sure that we're supporting that center of excellence a lot of the times where in my past roles as a practitioner, I was giving that end user presentation the majority of the time. Um, and so being in house and being really tightly wound into all the moving parts and pieces of the strategy and, you know, that new email that came out from the CEO this morning. And so I could always pepper those things in the presentation. So I think that it's uh, one layer removed. Um, and so it's kind of a it serves a different role and purpose, but it's still the majority of where we're spending our time. 
So are you finding it challenging if people are, if things are getting lost in translation when they're taking your information and disseminating that in their own organizations? So that isn't something that I've run into with my current clients so much because, um, again, in those like prep sessions or those like pre-presentation sessions, um, when we're, we're showing them how we're crafting that narrative, we're very careful to say um, or to even have a conversation about what belongs in that primary narrative, that primary deck, and what we can hold back from that story. And so I think that they do a pretty good job um, passing that along to their, to their end users. So it sounds like the great work that you're doing is not just handing over a story that makes sense to you as a practitioner, but you're really fleshing out from their own needs perspective and what it is they want um, and what ultimately really matters. You know, you're separating the wheat from the chaff before they have the chance to go and run with it. And I, I think that's an amazing preemptive action you're taking on your part because <laughs> uh, it could really go both ways. So I want to dive into the core topic that you are like really rocking right now. So I heard you absolutely killed it at the Conversion Excel conference earlier this year. And I'll even admit, I'm just really now this year preparing content around presenting optimization results because I don't actually have a deep background in testing except for email marketing, which I had played around with. And I think I've come up with some great stuff, but I thought who better than to bring on someone who applies all of the best practices of data storytelling and, and visuals, but is also focusing so much on this very important niche, essentially, of digital marketing in itself. So first, I want to start with what do you think makes presenting CRO data different than other kinds of general usability or website or email marketing or search marketing? I would say that the biggest departure is the, the sophistication of the analytics and the statistics at mm -hmm. times. So um, it's, it's really easy for someone to watch, um, to your example, like a usability research, like an unmoderated study. You can watch that and be like, okay, that's familiar. I understand what that is. Or if you're looking at um, a trend on um, purchases or conversion rates uh, from website metrics, that's really easy to understand what that's all about. But when someone's looking at slides and they see a 1.3% conversion rate on your control and 1.5% in the calendar. <laughs> right. And sometimes that's a, a significant meaningful difference. And sometimes it's not. All of a sudden, the conversation is like, well, what's what's a p-value and what are confidence yep. levels? And so it gets it can go deep real quick. And so I think that that's what makes some of it a little bit more complicated or, or tricky at times. So I'm glad that you brought that up p-value in terms because this is also a lot of the questions I get from my students is how do you make concepts like statistical significance, the confidence level, things like that more accessible to your lay audience? Because for me, what I found is it's important to express that we feel confident enough to take an action without having to give them an entire college <laughs> freshman uh, session <laughs> of stats. But I'd love to hear, you know, how you keep your audience out of the weeds on stuff like that, but they still find that they can trust what your, what your direction is for them. 
Yeah. And I totally agree with you that giving someone an education session, especially during a presentation, <laughs> is like right. the biggest no-no. I, I actually uh, learned that trial by fire. I was um, the first time testing was a part of a major initiative when I was at the American Medical Association back to the beginning of my digital analytics career. I was going through some test results and there was a huge digital strategy team in the audience. And uh, there was some questions about some of these results. And I took that as a cue to educate on these concepts. And I was up at the whiteboard in no time, like drawing normal curves and shading things in. <laughs> and before you knew it, oh the meeting was over. Like I had totally lost my oh, audience wow. and miss, missed my chance to talk about the test that was a winner that we did have uh, a significant uh, change for. And on the way out, the COO said to me, he's like, you're telling me all about how to make the watch, but I just want to know what time it is. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, that's Bernie, an amazing okay. analogy for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was big for me. Um, and that's when I realized like how much more I needed to be changing the story as it relates to presenting test results. And so one thing is to first remove those educational moments and those educational sessions from the presentations themselves. So you can have those conversations about what a significant change is and how you'll know when to make what choices, but don't, don't steal your time from your results presentation. Like try to completely separate those two concepts. Okay. Um, so that's one. And then second, in the presentation, I don't think you need to talk about any of those statistical concepts because the reason everyone came to that meeting is because they're so excited for new information that's going to help them do their jobs better or make a smarter decision right. or lead to more impact. So you, I think you can leave that out completely. Um, if, if some of that needs to be there because you know you're going to get that question, that's when I would recommend leveraging the appendix just so you can like bookmark your, your narrative where you're at. You can flip to that to, to dig into whatever questions, but come back to the story that, that you prepared. Um, and, and when you're forced to have those, those conversations in the, in the presentation, I recommend using analogies as much as possible versus like pulling up an equation and making someone feel like they're back in, you know, high school math or something. Um, as an example, if you're trying to explain the concept of confidence, that's one that's really uh, commonly misunderstood because people think that that's the confidence that the results are real. Uh, but the best analogy I've heard on that one, I'm not taking credit for this one at all. Someone, someone passes along to me. <laughs> that's okay. It's all being passed along anyway. <laughs> right? All sharing. Um, so if you went back in time in a time machine and re-ran that same experiment 99 more times, how often would you expect the same outcome? And so that's that helps people tease apart mm. the difference, the confidence in the result and what confidence represents. And so it does get like, you know, kind of it can go off the deep end quickly. And so again, it's, it's analogy. <laughs> that's, that's my, my defense or my recommendation. And, and again, if the, the goal of the presentation and your time together with your stakeholder audience is to describe what we learned and to help people outline the recommended next steps and actions, then ideally you can stay out of the, you know, was it 90% or 95% significance? That's fantastic. And I love that you're like one step ahead of me because my next question was literally, do you ever use analogies? Because I'm actually planning on gathering lots of analogies from, you know, thought leaders because I feel I'm 100% with you as soon as you relate a technical concept 
to something in the real world that people can relate to, it's like this, you can see a light bulb go off. And I remember that that is how everything clicked for me in digital marketing. I was, I was uh, fresh at an agency. I felt like I was drowning in like technical stuff and I just wasn't getting it. It was so frustrating. And then someone sat me down and described how marketing tracking pixels are like pieces of paper being passed back and forth. And like my jaw dropped because I was like, it's so simple. How did I not understand? <laughs> but it is such a powerful tool. So um, do you have any other analogies to share that you ever used like that? Because that was, I love both of those. Yeah, that another one that's really common is the difference between type one and type two error. Um, so understanding the relationship between those two and how when you're planning for reducing the error on both sides, how those are inverse relationships. Um, one of my favorite ones there is putting the guilty, uh, letting the guilty man go free or the innocent man in jail. Okay. And so it's understanding like, were you able to see a difference when there wasn't really one or did you not call a winner when there actually was? And so that's really what it boils down to. But when you get into like alpha and beta and you know, all those, that's, that's where it loses context. So I think that that's the best one I've heard there. See already I, my brain almost went, uh, abort with all the technical stuff. But as soon as you mentioned that story, which I'm familiar with, I was like, oh, I feel like I could totally get that. So powerful. I love it. So one of the things that the Conversion Excel um, people loved about your talk was you have this template formula for not only presenting the business case for why someone should buy into a test, because that's something interesting here too. In digital marketing, a lot of times people were like, Oh no, just set up a search campaign or we're building a website, just build the metrics and you present kind of after all of that's happened. But with testing, you actually have to get buy-in to perform the test. So you have to sell them on the idea of the test and then sell them on the idea of the results. I see that as two discrete events, right? Absolutely. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about the formula you have for actually pushing, getting buy-in for test cases? Yeah. So um, I'm going to go back to when I think about what this formula is, or when I started to put this together, it was actually a piece of advice that I heard from you at that first conference. Back in the <laughs> <laughs> um, it really hit home when you said, um, your slides are not your presentation. You are your presentation. That's right. The slides are nothing more than the visual assist to the message that you're trying to deliver. Hopefully I didn't butcher that. <laughs> <laughs> you're almost there. And I just love that it's getting passed on and I have to add it back to my keynotes now. I just realized. <laughs> <laughs> but if I'm using that as the lens and I'm focused on like wanting to inspire action and, and that conversation that my stakeholders are going to have as they're leaving the room, it's really about... Um, why we tested and setting your business case first. And so like, how did this idea come to be? Like, why is this an opportunity we should take advantage of mm -hmm. and talk about any evidence that you've gathered either quantitatively or qualitatively that supports that this is the right next move. And I think even when you're in your results presentation mode, starting with that context is really good because sometimes these tests run for six weeks in field and think about how many things change, mm -hmm. you know, especially for someone who's not in, who's a stakeholder of the test, who's not in it every single day monitoring to make sure 
things are going well, they, they might have lost some of that context. So I love to, to restart and refresh with that. Uh, and then digging into like what was tested, um, just like right out of the gate. And I love putting visuals here. Um, I love titling that slide with what's called like, I I've dubbed the diet hypothesis statement. <laughs> diet hypothesis. Okay. What's that? So it's like the really succinct question that you're going to solve with this experiment. Oh, I get it. Instead of like you're fully blown. Bloated. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, so it, it makes it a little bit accessible. But by okay. starting here with that simple question, that's like really encapsulating the what you're trying to drive for, the risk you're trying to mitigate, the new feature you're trying to get a, a read on, and including the visuals, it really roots it in something familiar. Because sometimes the, the concepts are what you're changing. Again, not everyone in the room is going to be in all those details. And so if you can give them something familiar, then they can relate early on and they can like get on board easier. Mm -hmm. And how do you present the visuals? You said you love to start with visuals up front to give context for the test. What kinds of visuals yeah. do you use? screenshots of what the experience looked like. And this isn't like the time to take screenshots across all different devices and put them as little <laughs> tiles. <laughs> uh -huh. Throw that in the appendix too, but um, make it really clear what was changed. Was it copy? Was it a flow? Like think about if you need to use arrows or call outs um, to really show and visualize what was altered. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe you're sending people down a different path because you're going to auto log them in. Um, so you can show the little jump with an arrow mm -hmm. over steps in the flow. Um, but try to make it as big as possible and make it easy for people to see what was different between the variants. This is so great. Now, in terms of presenting, you talked about why they should do the test. So I'd love to know, I've been kind of testing two different ways of going this way. A benefits-oriented uh, argument, what you'll gain, versus the actual opportunity cost if you don't take any action. So I was wondering, do you ever run projections that show either side of that coin? I think that that one, so two, two answers there for you. One is I try to stay away from, um, the, that potential, uh, incremental impact or lift in terms of a dollar amount or something, mm -hmm. especially as you're presenting those results, because those are estimations anyways. And, and how you get to those estimations is like a 200 level concept sometimes. So <laughs> okay. if you can avoid it, um, sometimes you can't. Um, I try to keep that out. Um, I think that that's appropriate for your prioritization criteria okay. in your hypothesis <laughs> library, but not something you want to remind someone of, um, especially if the outcomes or the way the test was designed was slightly different than it was originally concepted. Um, the other thing is the benefit statement versus um, like de-risking. Like if you're like, I just want to make sure that this alternate variation doesn't hurt conversion because mm -hmm. that's the outcome of the test. And so some of that differs whether or not this is more of a marketing uh, type of test or if this is product. So is this a feature? Is this validation? Um, or is this more a new opportunity, messaging, promotion, flow, that type of thing? Or even UX, that even might be a third bucket if you're, if you're altering the, um, the frictions and, and the path that you're taking people through. So you could alter it all different ways, just depending on um, the type of experiment. Oh, cool. Okay. So in terms of, you know, stating the hypothesis, do audiences tend to get lost at all when you're using kind of 
fancier. <laughs> and I guess it might depend on the level of savvy of the client. Um, but is there, what are some of the ways that you state hypotheses and, you know, what the KPIs are that helps keep people on track for understanding like the eye on the prize? Yep. And that's actually the next slide or the next piece of the template is okay. to line out or to, to detail out rather the full blown hypothesis statement and underneath it to show what your primary success metric is. And then all the other things that you're going to drill into or dig into as a part of your evaluation criteria of whether or not this is going to be a successful outcome, however you've defined it. Mm -hmm. And the, the most accessible template or format for a hypothesis statement that I found is the if, then, because. Okay. So if, and then insert or describe your variant, um, then, and then that's where you talk about your expected outcome or the impact on the KPI. Mm -hmm. And then because is like your rationale statement, like why is this going to win or what, what are some of those evidence pieces? And so it, it's a nice sentence structure and you can even... Um, use that in your hypothesis library for columns of if, then, because so you can detail that out early on in your test planning phases. So you can really think about what you want to alter and the impact you expect. And so the, the metrics that you derive from that are really easy because it's a solid line from what you put in that then part of the statement. If it's uh, increase in leads captured or increase in um, number of purchases, then that becomes your primary KPI used in your t-test. If, if that's the type of experiment. So can you give us an example of an if then because statement that you might have created recently? And of course, don't share client details or anything like that. But I think it would be great for us to hear what a, a real world example might sound like. Sure. So um, a recent example was testing copy of a CTA button for um, it was a video in front of um, some some content for for one of our healthcare clients, and so it was if we change the copy to X Y Z, so it was like <laughs> talk to us. I think then more people will click through to our video form because this copy is more conversational. Oh, got it. And they also we found a, a past winning test where that similar messaging strategy worked in email, and so we took that learning from the other channel and tried to take that to uh, other places to see if that's where we could uh, get some changes in user behavior. Oh, that see that crystallized it for me. Uh, exactly. That's really cool. And another strategy that you offer, and I love this one, I definitely need to do this more of this in my own talks, but is for making your presentations more interactive. So what's one of the ways that you're able to do that? Yeah. So after that's actually the very next part of the, the template as well. I'm not so following the template at all. <laughs> um, so after they've, they've, you've laid out the business case, you've given them the primary question, you got into the details of how you're going to measure success and the details of the measurement plan. I like to make it interactive by asking people either live in the meeting or before the meeting, which variation do you think won? Now, this does not replace a well-thought-out, evidence-driven hypothesis statement. We're not just taking shots in the dark. This isn't, what do you think? Um, but this is, it's a good moment to just pause um, and have people give you their answers and their rational statements mm -hmm. and, and why they think it will win. Um, and I, I like this for a couple of reasons. One is that if people in the room are going to have to make a call, you're asking them to make a call, they're going to have to think, are there any other pieces of information I would have to have to answer this question? 
and you can clear that up before you even get into the results. So before okay. people are even looking at the outcomes, they can ask, well, did you run this um, on mobile too? Or um, how did this look for people who are already customers? So if there's any of those details that you could flesh out or describe before you're looking at results, then it doesn't become about the validity of results when they're asking these questions. It's just interrogation so that they can be uh, really following along in the story. And the other reason I like it is I started doing this just for fun. The first time we ever ran a test um, at AMA and we continued with it and never to this date, knock on wood, as the majority voted for the winning variation. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And it's such a good marketing point, right? Because yeah. it's like if we had all gone with our collective gut here. Yep. Mm -hmm. we would have done some negative business effect. And that's not to say that there aren't some people who are good at guessing the winning outcome and you can gamify that and make it fun, but it's just a really good proof point. Um, I always collected that as part of our information of our program health scorecard is number of times the majority voted and we always saw the zero there. So it's <laughs> that's awesome. another touch point to be evangelizing why we test. I love that actually as a metric for the test that you, as part of your scorecard, you actually have accuracy of, of team weighing in. And this is, this is again, why as many times as people ask me like, what would you do? And what does your gut say? I'm like, eh, eh, eh. I don't trust that at all because there used to be a service. It might still be around called Witch Test One. Mm -hmm. It used to be the thing, like my favorite time of day when I would get their email. And basically they would email you the results of a very potent testing case study. And they would ask you to predict the winner. And I am telling you my accuracy rate was like 3%. <laughs> Every time I'm like, this is it. This no, every single time. And it, it's just amazing because we are simply not our customers. It's rare when we're actually measuring something where we are the exact customers. And sometimes even having that meta understanding of marketing completely shifts our perspective on how real world people are going to behave. So I love those tips about, because it adds a la layer of gamification in there too, right? Mm -hmm. Now, do you have people predict a winner when you're both selling the test idea and also presenting results? Um, so it's usually not when I'm selling in the idea, although I, my brain is uh, thinking through how you could potentially involve that. Um, I, in my past roles as a practitioner, I have been above no tactic to get people excited about experimentation. So <laughs> if that could work, I would be all about it. Um, it's more uh, something that we've communicated as soon as the test launches. Oh, so usually okay. there would be um, an email communication or there'd be some forum for the testing team to say like, hey, guess what? This is live. You might see this when, when you're hitting the website, FYI, but also get excited. We might be able to learn something new here. And so um, I would use Outlook voting buttons sometimes oh, cool. um, in communication or um, sometimes we would do like whiteboard tallies, um, just different nice. ways, any, any way that you can get people kind of excited or uh, interacting with that. So it, it could come at, at any point, but if, if it's live in the meeting, you know, you could take like a show of hands and especially if there's a hippo in the room, <laughs> especially if they're wrong, it's a great little fun light moment. Everyone have. makes light of it. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I really like that. All right. So finally, uh, one of the key parts 
of your template also seems to be how you present learnings and action, the so what part. So I would love for you to go into that a bit. After you talk about your primary KPI and you dig into your segmentation and you walk everyone through your analysis, this is the slide that's like the hit at home. So if I'm thinking about the agenda of the time I want to spend together with my stakeholder audience, um, I want 40 to 50% of my time to be with this slide in the background because this is where it all like the rubber meets the road. So I like to present this um, side by side visually so that you can see how every learning ties to an action step. Because a common misconception is that you're only learning or moving things forward if you have winning tests, but that is absolutely not the case. Uh, you can learn something from every test outcome, uh, whether it's you know a win or a loss or a, you know if you want to communicate that save. So some of the learnings might be, okay, this one didn't win, and the, the action step is, so we're going to leave the current control in place. But then the next step might be, but we're, we don't feel like this idea is done. Like maybe we didn't put our best foot forward. So, um, you know, we learned that this, the way we put this test forward didn't make a change in user experience. So we're going to go back and talk with the marketers or we're going to do some usability research. We're going to drill into some additional reporting to see if there's another opportunity. So um, again, it's all about what we learned and how we're going to tie that to our next steps once we leave this, this presentation. Okay. Um, when you say you present them side by side, is it like paint a picture for me visually what that looks like? Um, so I have 50% on the left-hand side tied to a list of learnings, and then they line up um, to the other half of the slide, which is the action statement. Oh, and so they're yeah. lined up. You could put it in a table. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes there's more than one action coming out of a learning. Um, it maybe is new test ideas that you want to go back into the hypothesis library for prioritization because a lot of new test ideas come from things you've tested in the past. So um, it could be a table, but I love looking at it uh, side by side. Awesome. Okay. So we are at the question that I've been dying to ask this whole time, which is how are you visualizing the actual differences in your AB or MBT uh, testing results? What kind of charts are you using? How are they different than a normal chart you might see in a regular SEO presentation? I'm dying to know. <laughs> well, it looks very uh, Leah Pika-esque. Um, oh, all right. <laughs> So it's, it's the, out of all the slides in the template, this is actually the one that I suggest being the most prescriptive on if you're going to try to use this for your, the way that you present test results. So the headline is going to talk about your single sentence impact on the primary KPI, and that's going to be directly tied to a single visual, which might just be a bar chart um, in a lot of cases. Maybe it's just two bars. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's keep it simple. Um, and then beneath the, the actual visualization is that little bumper that you have on some of the, your slide templates. And that's what I call the translation bar. Mm, so that's yeah. where you take the, the maybe it's a 25% lift or, you know, your challenger had a 2.3% conversion rate. And that's where you take those numbers that are really meaningful to analysts and the CROs and you translate to something that's meaningful to your marketers or your product team. So maybe you annualize that impact and you say, this means this year you will get, you know, 5,000 more leads. Or if we were to project this out across all the different times we run this campaign, you would receive uh, this much more impact on 
X, Y, Z. So it's, it's where you take the, the numbers and translate it into something that really resonates with your, with your stakeholder, the reason that you ran the experiment. I love that so much. Um, it's kind of almost the opposite of taking a projection of what you either might gain or might leave on the table. But um, I just actually did an, a testing-oriented Pika Protocol keynote for Brooks Bell, a great testing firm. And I found that one of the more powerful things I just threw in there at the last second is what this actually translated to. It translated to like tens of thousands of more applications for something and making that more concrete, taking that out of just a percent lift of something that seemed to be the thing where people are like, Oh, okay. So again, bringing it right back to that real world, uh, concept, I think is so important. Um, so that's really, that's really cool. How did you visualize that for that team? So I actually, I went through a couple of different routes in terms of uh, visualizing the difference in performance between the two test cells, I used a bar chart. That's why I was kind of relieved because I'm like, is there really a fancier chart here that I'm missing? No, this is what works. So I did kind of a combination and I, I it's a work in progress, but first I visualized two of their KPIs as bar charts and just show the comparison. And then I made sure to put a pretty prominent um, kind of label near the winner saying the confidence level. So there was like some kind of visual cue that not only did it outperform, but this was a significant winner. And then what I did is I created a variance bar chart where for those two KPIs, I put the, te I put the winning cells performance in one graph and I set the zero access to the control performance for each of those KPIs. And then for each of those, each bar represented a separate measure, like click-through and then application complete rate. But each of those performances were how much higher the winning version was over the control. So it's not necessarily perfect yet. I'm still trying to fine-tune making sure that that's really understandable. Um, but it seemed like a creative way to represent not only because again, like you said, the performance looked like they were pretty similar. So seeing it that way might surprise people that it was a significant win, but seeing it as variance seemed to be more like, oh, okay, I see because this is, you know, this much higher. So I, I like know. that. What do, you I like what do you think? You're the expert. <laughs> yeah, I like to do the single slide on the the primary KPI because that's the the, the signal that you're going to use for your right. t-test, and then after that is where I typically suggest to drill into any of the secondary KPIs or any segmentation you looked at or the down funnel downstream metrics. But what we were talking about here is like one visual for that whole cannibalization analysis, right? So. Did this challenger outperform the control on our primary KPI? But let's make sure uh, it wasn't at the sacrifice of it. everything else we consider valuable. So I think that that could be a really cool way to 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 drill into that. That's really neat. And what was interesting, I tried to leverage some storytelling techniques, like surprising turn turns of events. And so I incorporated things like, well, what surprised us about? this and that can create some anticipation 
and you'll you can further visualize like well this metric actually underperformed in this metric we don't exactly know why yet but it's definitely something we're going to look into and we can account for here here and here so that way you're interrupting kind of that linear flow of oh this one won and the book is closed on the story yep neat all right so i call the next segment the upgrade which is a power tip for doing our jobs of presenting data more effectively. It's a, it's a resource, it's a tip, it's a book, something to do your job more awesomely. So what do you have for us? Yeah, so a lot of uh, clients are asking about how they can skill up on the statistic side of CRO um, because they're you know, familiar with the way that the data is collected and how their testing tools are splitting traffic, but digging into some of these deeper concepts, especially as the tools get more and more sophisticated, how can they ramp up on that? And the best resource that I've found is there's this free course on Udacity um, that they did in partnership with Google, with um, a Google statistician and a Google wow. engineer. And it's like a 14 hour course with oh. like, like, so, but it's in little parts and pieces. So don't get too intimidated because you can pick and choose what, what you want. So you can drill in on um, any different specific parts and there's exercises and they walk you through it just like in those Udacity courses and it's all free. So I recommend that. That's incredible. That sounds like a course I needed a long time ago. So I'll definitely be checking that out and we'll make sure the link for that and everything we've mentioned is on the show notes page for this episode. I also wanted to throw in a couple questions before we get really wrap things up. You know, what's your dream test? Like if you could test anything for anyone, sky's the limit, what would you do? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, the it's to me, it's less about what the test is um, and more about like m- finding a way to, that that test is so deeply ingrained with business impact. So mm. before I joined search discovery, my goal was like, let's, let's deploy the million dollar test <laughs> so that the outcome within that test period made a million dollars of impact. And so it's not going to be a uh, button color. That's going to get you that million dollar impact. It's not going to be copy uh, tweaks, you know, deep below the fold. It's going to be about business level testing. And so I get really jazzed and excited when we can say that we're going to run an experiment on something that would be transformational to your business because it's different approach to how you're talking to your customers or the way you interact with your customers, which take more time usually for not only the buy-in and approvals, but for the development. But that's what really gets me jazzed is when uh, you can do those business type testing that's really going to change the direction. So something transformational might be like a insurance company and you want to get applications in and one control is all you've ever done is had a website and there's an application that they can find somewhere versus having a chatbot, some sort of AI powered chatbot come in and actually enhance the experience for them as soon as possible. And that sounds like a more dramatic way of changing the experience. Yeah. And, and, and other applications of that is personalization Mm. offline. um, So that you're not just using pixels to talk to customers in a personalized way, but what are ways that you could take that to brick and mortar or to the kiosk or um, to some other locations that are usually considered out of scope for some traditional AB testing um, experiments, but could be uh, a big game changer for how you talk to your, your users. That's awesome. Well, thanks for asking that one. That one kind of popped in my head 
while we were talking and really that is something really to think about. We, we do often get caught up in tiny minutiae. I think part of that is they're the easiest variables to control for. Um, but you're right. It reminds me of this uh, author named Ramit Seti who teaches people how to become wealthy by their own definition. And he just had an email where he said, no, I'm not going to tell you what brand of fabric softener to buy so you save 13 cents a month. I'm going to help you make sweeping changes to and, and amass great amounts of wealth by making big changes to certain things. So that, uh, that resonates. All right, so this is our final question. Think very hard and imagine this very plausible scenario. <laughs> I'm already <laughs> laughing. <laughs> you are just leaving a 90s throwback hip hop yoga class <laughs> with me because those are my two favorite things ever. <laughs> I laughed when I saw that. When suddenly you trip and fall into a vortex that pulls you back to the moment you're about to deliver your first presentation. What are you presenting about? And what would today you say to yesterday you? So back to my first presentation, I remember this um, actually pretty well. Um, it was my first job out of college. I was in market research. My client was Time Warner Cable. And I was about to tell them that their customer service, uh, yeah, their CSAT scores had dropped um, significantly. So it was a, a difficult message. And what I would tell myself is, um, if I were to go back, is to relax and to <laughs> enjoy it. Because um, I, I treated those presentations um, like I was preparing for a court case. Like I had to submit all these different pieces into evidence and it was I was going to get interrogated by my audience. But the reality is that's, that's not always how it goes down. It's usually not how it goes down in that my analysis and, and the, the rigor that I put behind it was enough that, mm. you know, it's okay to say, um, you know, actually, I'm not sure on a follow up question, let me take that back, I'd, I'd be happy to research and get back to you that that is a perfectly acceptable answer. And you don't need to, <laughs> you don't need to have all the answers in the meeting and kill yourself. Um, and not only in preparation, but in, in terms of the nerves. Um, and so I think I would uh, give myself a little pat on the back. Uh, and in hopes of upping the confidence and just say, enjoy this moment because you're going to end up loving presenting data and results to people for a long time to come. <laughs> oh, I think that's a really valuable piece of advice that hasn't really been talked about yet on this show, especially because I feel that sometimes we're expected to be like Alexa. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and we are not, we are human beings. We have, uh, we haven't taken the limitless pill. And I think when we are prepared for the idea and even say, oh, I hope I get a question I don't know the answer to, because that gives me a chance to follow up with my audience offline and build a relationship with rapport with them, which is going to help my career, you know, completely reframing that from going, I'm a failure <laughs> because I didn't know, to this is an opportunity can really help you because the only person that can believe, convince you you're a failure ultimately is yourself. So if you don't feel that way, you won't feel that way. That's <laughs> came out differently. <laughs> <laughs> well, Valerie, this was really special for me. I loved having you on, especially because we were talking about a topic that's really been 
hot off the presses and so many folks want to know how to present this kind of unique, interesting information in an effective way. So tell the listeners where they can keep up with you. Yeah, absolutely. You can find me on Twitter at Val Kroll, um, all lowercase. Shout out to Wilson there. Um, <laughs> he always teases me. And um, I'm also really excited to be presenting uh, about this exact topic at Conversion Jam in Stockholm and Oslo in early October. Oh, that sounds great. Awesome. Well, and all of the links, once again, are going to be on the show notes page for this. So Valerie, I hope our paths cross again soon. I love it when it does. And I'm wishing you all the best. Thank you very much. Thanks again for having me. This is really fun. Well, that was awesome. You know, it's really been amazing watching Valerie really rise up and make a name for herself in this industry after we initially met. And I just think that the knowledge that she shared today in presenting very unique style of data that's within our field can be really challenging. And I hope that you've walked away with something really practical that you can use starting tomorrow. So to catch all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode, please visit the show notes page at leahpika.com slash 045. I would love if you could leave me a comment or suggestions because I want to hear about the challenges you face when you're presenting information and trying to get your insights noticed and acted upon. And if you like what you've heard, please hop on over to iTunes to subscribe, leave a rating and review. I have another fresh review in that I'd love to share because I promise I share my favorites. And this is from Dominic Q. So a must for any aspiring speaker. My number one source of income is through keynote speaking and Leah cracks the code on how to deliver a persuasive presentation. She's entertaining and practical and has a way of painting images with her words that have inspired me to up my speaking game. Her guest interviews are always entertaining as she minds their best speaking tips. Oh, thank you so much. I'm always overwhelmed by these reviews and really so grateful. And please, if you have a, mo uh, um, a moment, visit leahpika.com slash iTunes because leaving a rating review shows me that I'm on the right track for you and it helps the show get found by other practitioners like yourself. And today's presentation inspiration is by Joseph Chatfield. And that is... Oratory is the power to talk people out of their sober and natural opinions. <laughs> and we've come a long way since oratory, but my take is that presenting testing data is definitely one of the more powerfully convincing areas of digital marketing that you can use to help your organizations become more data-driven and less gut-driven. Now, presenting testing data well is what I hope to help you continue to do on your path to becoming indispensable. That's it for today. Wishing you an awesome June. Namaste and Namago. And that's a wrap. And next question. Da -da 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 -da. <laughs> That wasn't very smooth, but hopefully that was okay. <laughs> of course. I'd be honored. Aww. <laughs> That's so sweet. I love it.